We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. It looks funny out there to see my glove out there, Jim. Jimmy Boyle, get back in. Okay. Good morning, Gordo. Yes, how are you? How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? By cooperating together in these new realms of infinity. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 72 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Jiminy 8. On September 20th, 1965, NASA named the crew for Jiminy 8. Neil Armstrong, a civilian test pilot with much experience in the X-15 rocket research aircraft program, was chosen as the command pilot as he had been in the backup crew for Gemini 5. His fellow crewman, David Scott, was new to the Gemini program. The backup crew for Gemini 8 was Navy Lieutenant Commanders Pete Conrad and Richard F. Gordon, Jr. We will begin with some background on the Gemini 8 astronauts. First, Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong was born on August 5, 1930, to Stephen Koenig Armstrong and Viola Louise Engel in Alglazy County near Wapakoneta, Ohio. He was of Scottish, Irish, and German ancestry and had two young siblings, June and Dean. His father, Stephen, worked as an auditor for the Ohio State Government. The family moved around the state repeatedly after Armstrong's birth, living in 20 different towns. When Neil was two years old, his father took him to a flying event called the Cleveland Air Races. This could have been the beginning of Neil's love for flying. When he was five years old, he experienced his first airplane flight in Warren, Ohio on July 20, 1936, when he and his father took a ride in a Ford Trimotor, also known as the Tin Goose. His father's last move was in 1944 back to Neil's birthplace, Wapakoneta. There, Neil held many jobs around town, especially at the local airport as he was fascinated with aviation. Armstrong attended Bloom High School and took flying lessons at the grassy Wapakoneta Airfield. He earned a student flight certificate on his 16th birthday, then soloed later in August. He accomplished this before he had an automobile driver's license. Armstrong was also active in the Boy Scouts and earned the rank of Eagle Scout. Due to his natural interest in aviation, in 1947, at age 17, Armstrong began studying aeronautical engineering at Purdue University. He was only the second person in his family to attend college. He was also accepted to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, 
but the only good engineer he knew who had attended MIT dissuaded him from attending, telling Armstrong that it was not necessary to go all the way to Cambridge, Massachusetts for a good education. Armstrong's call-up from the Navy arrived on January 26, 1949, requiring him to report to Naval Air Station Pensacola for flight training at age 18. This lasted almost 18 months during which he qualified for carrier landing aboard the USS Cabot and the USS Wright. On August 16, 1950, Two weeks after his 20th birthday, Armstrong earned his wings and was informed by letter that he was a fully qualified naval aviator, making him the youngest pilot in his squadron. His first assignment was to Fleet Aircraft Service Squadron 7 at the Naval Air Station in San Diego. Two months later, he was assigned to Fighter Squadron 51 an all-jet squadron. Armstrong made his first flight in a jet on January 5, 1951. The jet he flew was an F-9F-2B Panther. In June, he made his first jet carrier landing on the USS Essex and was promoted the same week from midshipman to ensign. By the end of the month, the Essex had set sail with his Flighter squadron aboard, bound for Korea, where the squadron would act as ground attack aircraft. Armstrong first saw action in the Korean War on August 29, 1951, as an escort for a photo reconnaissance plane over Songjin. Five days later, on September 3rd, he flew armed reconnaissance over the primary transportation and storage facilities south of the village of Meijongni, west of Wosan. While making a low bombing run at 350 miles per hour, Armstrong's F-9F Panther was hit by anti-aircraft fire. While trying to regain control, he collided with a pole at a height of about 20 feet, which sliced off about 3 feet of the Panther's right wing. Armstrong flew the plane back to friendly territory, but due to the loss of the aileron, ejection was his only safe option. He planned to eject over water and wait rescue by Navy helicopters, and then therefore he flew to an airfield near Pohang, but his ejection seat was blown back over land. A jeep driven by a roommate from flight school picked Armstrong up. It is unknown what happened to the wreckage of Armstrong's plane. All told, Armstrong flew 78 missions over Korea for a total of 121 hours in the air, most of which were in January of 1952. He received the Air Medal for 20 combat missions, a Gold Star for the next 20 missions, and the Korean Service Medal and Engagement Star. Armstrong left the Navy at age 22 on August 23, 1952 and became a lieutenant junior grade in the U.S. Naval Reserve. He remained in the Reserve for eight years and then resigned his commission in October of 1960. 
After his service with the Navy, Armstrong returned to Purdue, where his best grades came in the four semesters following his return from Korea. His final GPA was 4.8 out of 6.0. He pledged the Phi Delta Theta fraternity after his return, and he wrote and co-directed its musical as part of the All-Student Review. He was also a member of Kappa Kappa Psi, National Honorary Band Fraternity, and a baritone player in the Purdue All-American Marching Band. While attending Purdue, he met Janet Elizabeth Sharon, who was majoring in home economics. According to the couple, there was no real courtship and neither could remember the exact circumstances of their engagement, except that it occurred while Armstrong was working at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA, at Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory. Armstrong graduated in 1955 with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering. Neil and Janet were married on January 28, 1956, at the Congregational Church in Wilmot, Illinois. Janet never finished her degree, a fact she regretted later in life. The couple had three children together, Eric, Karen, and Mark. In June 1961, Daughter Karen was diagnosed with a malignant tumor of the middle part of her brain stem. X-ray treatment showed, slowed its growth, but her health deteriorated to the point where she could no longer walk or talk. Two-year-old Karen died of pneumonia related to her weakened health on January 28, 1962. After his graduation from Purdue, in 1955, Armstrong decided to become an experimental research test pilot. He applied at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA, high-speed flight station at Edwards Air Force Base. Although the committee had no open positions, it forwarded his application to the Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory in Cleveland, where Armstrong began working in 1955. Armstrong's stint at Cleveland lasted a couple of months, and by July 1955, he had returned to Edwards Air Force Base for a new job. On his first day at Edwards, Armstrong was tasked his first assignments, which were to pilot chase planes during releases of experimental aircraft and modified bombers. He also flew the modified bombers, and on one of these missions, had his first incident at Edwards. On March 22, 1956, Armstrong was in a Boeing B-29 Superfortress, which was to airdrop a Douglas D-558-2 skyrocket. He sat in the right-hand pilot seat, while the left-hand seat commander, Stan Buchart, flew the B-29. As they ascended to 30,000 feet, the number four engine stopped, and the propeller began windmilling, rotating freely in the airstream. The chart hit the switch that was supposed to stop the propeller spinning. The propeller did slow, but it did not stop. Then it started spinning again, this time even faster than the other engines. If it spun too fast, it would break apart. 
Also, their aircraft needed to hold an airspeed of 210 miles an hour to launch the rocket payload, and the B-29 could not land with the rocket attached to its belly. Armstrong and Bouchard brought the aircraft into a nose-down alignment to increase speed, then launched the sky rocket. At the instant of launch, the number four engine propeller disintegrated. Pieces of it damaged the number three engine and hit the number two engine. Bouchard and Armstrong were forced to shut down the number three engine due to damage and the number one engine due to the torque it created. They made a slow circling descent from 30,000 feet using only the number two engine and landed safely. When Armstrong moved to Edwards Air Force Base, he lived in the bachelor quarters of the base, while Janet, his wife, lived in the Westwood District of Los Angeles. After one semester, they moved into a house in Antelope Valley. Armstrong's first flight in a rocket plane was on August 15, 1957, in the Bell X-1B to an altitude of 11.4 miles. The nose landing gear broke on landing, which had happened on about a dozen previous flights of the Bell X-1B, due to the aircraft's design. He later flew the North American X-15 seven times. His penultimate flight reached an altitude of 207,500 feet, which is 63.2 kilometers. Armstrong was involved in several incidents that went down in Edwards' folklore or were chronicled in the memoirs of colleagues. The first occurred during his sixth X-15 flight on April 20, 1962, while Armstrong tested a self-adjusting control system. He flew to a height of over 207,000 feet, the highest he had flew before Gemini 8. But the aircraft nose was held up too long during descent, and the X-15 bounced off the atmosphere back up to 140,000 feet. At that altitude, the air is so thin that aerodynamic surfaces have almost no effect. He flew past the landing field at Mach 3 at over 100,000 feet in altitude, and ended up 40 miles south of Edwards. After sufficient descent, he turned back towards the landing area and barely managed to land without striking Joshua trees at the south end. It was the longest X-15 flight in both time and distance from the ground track. Four days later, Armstrong was involved in a second incident when he flew for the only time with Chuck Yeager. Their job flying a Lockheed T-33 shooting star, was to evaluate Smith Ranch Dry Lake for use as an emergency landing site for the X-15. In his autobiography, Yeager wrote that he knew the lake bed was unsuitable for landings after recent rains, but Armstrong insisted on flying out anyway. As they attempted a touch-and-go, the wheels became stuck and they had to wait for rescue. Armstrong tells a different version of the events, where Jaeger never tried to talk him out of it, 
and they made a successful landing on the east side of the lake. Then Jaeger told him to try again, and this time a bit slower. On the second landing, they became stuck, and according to Armstrong, Jaeger was in fits of laughter. Many of the test pilots at Edwards praised Armstrong's engineering ability. Milt Thompson said he was the most technically capable of early X-15 pilots. Bill Dana said Armstrong had a mind that absorbed things like a sponge. Those who flew for the Air Force tended to have a different opinion, especially people like Yeager and Pete Knight, who did not have engineering degrees. Knight said that pilot engineers flew in a way that was more mechanical than flying, and gave this as the reason why some pilot engineers got into trouble. Their flying skills did not come naturally. A few weeks later, on May 21, 1962, Armstrong was involved in what Edwards' folklore called the Nellis Affair. He was sent in a Lockheed F-104 Starfighter to inspect Delmar Dry Lake in southern Nevada, again for emergency landings. He misjudged his altitude and also did not realize that the landing gear had not fully extended. As he touched down, the landing gear began to retract. Armstrong applied full power to abort the landing, but the vertical fin and landing gear struck the ground, damaging the radio and releasing the hydraulic fluid. Without radio communication, Armstrong flew south to Nellis Air Force Base, past the control tower, and waggled his wings, which is the signal for a no-radio approach. The loss of hydraulic fluid caused the tail hook to release, and upon landing, he caught the arresting wire attached to an anchor chain and dragged the chain along the runway. It took 30 minutes to clear the runway and rig an arresting cable, and Armstrong telephoned Edwards and asked for someone to come collect him. Milt Thompson was sent in an F-104B, the only two-seater available, but a plane Thompson had never flown. With great difficulty, Thompson made it to Nellis, but a strong crosswind caused a hard landing and the left main tire suffered a blowout. The runway was again closed to clear it, and Bill Dana was sent to Nellis in a T-33 shooting star but he almost landed long, and the Nellis Base Operations Office decided how to avoid any further problems. It would be best to find three NASA pilots ground transport back to Edwards. As a research pilot, Armstrong served as project pilot on the F-100 Super Sabre A and C variants, F-101 Voodoo, and the Lockheed F-104A Starfighter. He also flew the Bell X-1B, the Bell X-5, Northern American X-15, F-105 Thunder Chief, F-106 Delta Dart, B-47 Stratojet, KC-135 Stratotanker, and was one of the eight elite pilots involved in the Paraglider Research Vehicle Program. Armstrong made seven flights in the X-15 from November 1960 to July 1962. 
He reached a top altitude of 207,500 feet in the X-15-3 and a top speed of Mach 5.74 in the X-15-1. He left the Dryden Research Center with a total of 2,450 hours and over his career he flew more than 200 different models of aircraft including jets, rockets, helicopters, and gliders. In 1958, Armstrong was selected for the U.S. Air Force's Man in Space Soonest Program, which had the unfortunate abbreviation of MISS, MISS. In November of 1960, Armstrong was chosen as part of the pilot consultant group for the X-20 Dinosaur, a military space plane under development by Boeing for the U.S. Air Force. And on March 15, 1962, he was selected by the U.S. Air Force as one of the seven pilots who would fly the space plane when it got off the design board. In the months after the announcement that applications were being sought for the second group of NASA astronauts, Armstrong became more and more excited about the prospects of both the Apollo program and of investigating a new aeronautical environment. Armstrong's astronaut application arrived about a week after the June 1, 1962 deadline. But Richard Day, with whom Armstrong had worked closely at Edwards, saw the late arrival of the application and slipped it into the pile before anyone noticed. At Brooks Air Force Base at the end of June, Armstrong underwent a medical exam that many of the applicants described as painful and at times seeming pointless. Then, Dick Slayton called Armstrong on September 13, 1962 and asked whether he would be interested in joining the NASA Astronaut Corps as part of what the press dubbed the New Nine. Without hesitation, Armstrong said yes. The selections were kept secret until three days later. Although newspaper reports had been circulating since earlier that year that he would be selected as the first civilian astronaut. It turned out that Armstrong was one of the two civilian pilots selected for the second group. The other was Elliot C. On Gemini 8, Armstrong became the first American civilian to fly in space. Now for some background information on Armstrong's crewmate on Gemini 8. David Randolph Scott was born on June 6, 1932 on Randolph Field near San Antonio, Texas. His middle name, Randolph, came from his birthplace, Randolph Field. Dave was of Scottish descent and, like Armstrong, he was active in the Boy Scouts of America, where he achieved its second highest rank of Life Scout. Scott was educated at Texas Military Institute and Riverside Polytech High School in Riverside, California, where he joined the swim team and set several state and local swim records. Scott also attended the Western High School in Washington, D.C., graduating in June 1949. In D.C., he was an honor student 
and he was on the school swim team. Next, Scott attended the University of Michigan for one year, where he was an honor student in the engineering school, a member of the swim team, and he pledged the Sigma Chi fraternity before finally receiving an invitation to attend West Point. At West Point, Scott graduated fifth in his class of 633 students in 1954. Because of his high standing in class, he was able to choose which branch of the military he would serve. Scott chose the Air Force because he wanted to fly jets. Scott was accepted into the Air Force and began jet flight training. He completed pilot training at Webb Air Force Base, Texas in 1955 and then reported for gunnery training at Laughlin Air Force Base, Texas and Luke Air Force Base, Arizona. He was assigned to the 32nd Tactical Fighter Squadron at Sotisburg Air Force Base in the Netherlands from April 1956 to July 1960. Upon completing his tour of duty, he returned to the U.S. for study at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In 1959, he married his first wife, Anne, and they subsequently had two children. In 1962, he received both a Master's of Science degree in Aeronautics and Astronautics and the degree of Engineer in Aeronautics and Astronautics from MIT. After that, he went to Edwards Air Force Base in California to train as a test pilot. In October of 1963, he was selected in the third group of U.S. astronauts chosen. Scott was the first of the Group 3 astronauts to be selected to fly and was also the first to command a mission of his own. Now that we have met the astronauts, let's move on to the preparation for Gemini 8. As soon as he was assigned to the mission, Dave Scott began concentrating on the extravehicular exercise, eventually going through over 300 airplane zero-g parabolas and more than 20 hours on an air-bearing table. The astronauts practiced EVA maneuvers supported by an air cushion of 0 .0254 millimeters on a table roughly 6 by 7 meters. They used a zip gun to move from one place to another, which gave them some idea of what it would be like to start and stop in space. This strenuous training raised some questions. Dave Scott's zip gun had about 15 times more propellant than Ed White's on Gemini 4, and Scott's Zipcon used Freon instead of oxygen as fuel, further multiplying the gun's total impulse. Since Freon has a density of about three times greater than oxygen, the problem was we knew how oxygen acted in a vacuum, but Scott worried how Freon would behave. One problem soon showed up. At low temperatures, the Freon caused the zip gun's valve to stick open when triggered, and the escaping gas threatened to tumble the astronaut into wide open space. New seals solved the problem, and two new shutoff valves added a safety factor. 
By December, Scott and Armstrong were voicing a number of doubts about the EVA equipment. One problem was the possibility of an oxygen ejector in the chest pack freezing and blocking the flow of oxygen from both the spacecraft and the emergency supply in the chest pack. They first realized the problem when the life support system started icing up during tests. Although test conditions were more severe than Scott would meet in space, he could hardly be expected to ignore the warning. The designers obliged by installing 20-watt heaters near the ejector. Another problem was the tangle of umbilicals, tethers, and jumper cables that made donning the chest pack inside the spacecraft very difficult. During early tests, Scott found his movements restricted and his vision nearly blocked by his pressure suit while he was trying to connect everything. Late in December 1965, however, Scott satisfied himself that he could strap on the unit, hook it up, and open up the hatch in the McDonnell altitude chamber at a simulated 46,000 meters. Scott went through a full dress rehearsal in the last few weeks before flight in the MSC 6-meter vacuum chamber, putting on the chest pack inside the spacecraft, going outside, and then donning the backpack housed in the adapter ring. The EVA equipment problems and the technical problems in qualifying Agena, covered in episode 71, added to the already heavy burdens of planning the mission. Project Gemini was entering a more advanced phase, as both spacecraft and target-faced missions of growing complexity that would test their capabilities to the limit. Program leaders had to balance their concern for reaching the program goals against the dangers of trying to do too much too soon. Persistent problems with the Agena could not help but raise doubts and cause second thoughts about going forward with some of the yet untried operations. Even under the best of circumstances, trying to foresee and counter everything that might go wrong with four major dynamic systems, the spacecraft, the Titan booster, the Atlas booster, and the Agena, made mission planning an arduous task. With major technical difficulties further clouding the issue for Gemini 8, plans changed quickly and often. In the summer of 1965, MSC's Mission Planning and Analysis Division had started tailoring a plan for Gemini 8. Several alternative modes of rendezvous were being considered. One was a rendezvous sooner than the fourth revolution of the spacecraft. The standard rendezvous had been scheduled for Gemini 6, despite doubts that flight control team could support any rendezvous earlier than that. The scheme, called M equals 2, rendezvous in the second revolution, being studied by the mission planners, was worth thinking about. Another subject was a proposed phantom rendezvous with an imaginary target, requiring a thrust from the Agena's main engine of at least 500 feet per second to take place shortly after the first sleep period. 
The pilot would then exit the spacecraft for more than two hours of extravehicular activity, that is, floating around freely around the world. After that, the spacecraft would undock and withdraw from the Agena to return later for a second rendezvous. No sooner had the Gemini 8's plan been committed to paper than caution flags were raised. One issue was an old one that the earlier crews had fought, sleeping alternatively. Lockheed recommended that one astronaut remain awake whenever the spacecraft and Agena were docked. Matthews consulted with Whitaker and then denied the request on the grounds that sleep at this time after launch rendezvous and docking and before EVA was necessary for both men. Besides, Whitaker's analysis showed that the tracking network could cope with almost anything that might go wrong with the Agena. Another question was time. Fuel cell development problems had imposed a limit of two days on rendezvous flights. Could so elaborate a plan be carried out in such a short time? Maybe the time could be expanded since the fuel cell's troubles seemed headed toward resolution. McDonald was asked to see if later rendezvous missions could be extended to three days. Meetings continued throughout the fall of 1965 as spokesman for NASA headquarters, McDonald, and MSC began to stress re-rendezvous, which they thought might be good training for Apollo. Discussions on firing the two Agena propulsion systems remained inconclusive, as did talk about flying for three days, when a McDonald study indicated that the fuel cells could support a 72-hour flight if all supplies were carefully rationed, that question appeared to be settled. Firing the Agena main engine while docked with the spacecraft, however, was finally rejected for the same reason that it had been rejected on Gemini 6. It was not deemed safe enough. That meant the Phantom Rendezvous was out. Toward the end of February 1966, with problems seemingly well in hand, a final version of the flight plan appeared. Like the Gemini 7 plan, it was more of an outline than a precise schedule of events. Crew and flight controllers had a range of options to deal flexibly with circumstances as they arose in the course of the mission. Operations planning was being paralleled by experiments planning. By November 1965, the Manned Spaceflight Experiments Board at NASA headquarters had approved eight tasks for Gemini 8. Eventually, ten experiments were approved for the mission, three of them requiring EVA. Of these, two were scientifically oriented. S-9, the nuclear emulsion, to expose an experimental package to the radioactivity in space, and S-10, the Agena micrometeorite collection, to study the micrometeorite content of the upper atmosphere. In the third experiment proposed by the Department of Defense, Scott would use a power wrench for weightless work. He would go to the adapter area 
pull out a box containing a torqueless motor-driven wrench, use the tool to take five nuts off a special plate, and then rebolt the plate to the box. This simple task, with and without knee tethers, would be compared with doing the same thing on the ground to show the differences in working in full gravity and in weightlessness. Scott and George C. Franklin of the Flight Crew Support Division decided to augment this experiment by adapting a cheap standard socket wrench set to fit the nuts and the pressurized glove. They believed that comparing the muscle-powered and the electrically operated tools would say something useful about energy usage in space. Mission plans and flight schedules were inseparable, and Apollo again began to intrude. Apollo Mission 201 was planned for February 1966. If there were any delays, it would slip into March. The problem was not with launch pads, nor in most cases with people. Rather, the problem was with the tracking ship. The Rose Knot Victor was the source of the conflict. For Apollo 201, a suborbital flight, the ship would be sailing the Atlantic Ocean, but its station for Gemini 8 was in the Pacific. Mueller ruled that Gemini flight had the priority, but Apollo 201 flew as scheduled on 26 February, giving the slow-moving Rose Knot time enough to keep its date with Gemini 8. Flight control also shifted for Gemini 8. Chris Kraft, who had directed flights from Mercury and all Gemini missions through Gemini 7 and 6A, had to leave Gemini to begin planning for lunar landings as Apollo neared operational status. Although he expected to keep an eye out for Gemini lessons that might be of use to Apollo, Kraft's move left Gemini Mission Control short of experienced flight directors. His successor, John Hodge, who headed the Flight Controls Division, divided flight direction into 12-hour shifts with Eugene Krantz, chief of the Flight Control Operations Branch, and Clifford E. Charlesworth, flight dynamics officer on past Gemini missions, began training as a flight director. Now I have a NASA audio clip on flight planning and training for Gemini 8. Early in the program, experts sit down and analyze the Gemini 8 flight. They know it is a three-day mission. Its primary purposes include rendezvous in space with an Agena target vehicle, the first docking in space, and a two-hour spacewalk by pilot David Scott. The experts then devise problems that could occur, some simple, some quite challenging. They feed these problems into a computer and sit back and see what happens, perhaps with a little glee. At any rate, the crew in the simulator and the controller at the console are given the problem. Both must respond correctly. About 90 problems will be run for the Gemini 8 mission. On the schedule are two days devoted to the Agena target vehicle, four days devoted to network simulations, and two days scheduled for running re-entry simulations, including emergency re-entries. Eleven days of problem solving. Most probably none of them would turn up during the flight. 
But if one should, the crew and the 5,000 people in the ground network that support these two men would be ready. In the two weeks before scheduled launch, equipment problems remained a threat. The EVA gear in particular was still in trouble, with icing and valves cracking. Then, at Cape Kennedy, the spacecraft environmental control system began acting up. And, over on Pad 14, Atlas fueling ran into some difficulties. These last two problems did cause one day's delay from March 15th to March 16th. But, then, everything was ready to go. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.